Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. Good afternoon or good evening to all of you. Thankful to be here. Uh, you know, our elders up at Summit, they continue to talk about how much they're just grateful for all of you and that you all are, you all of the church have just been such a tremendous blessing to us as a church up in Tacoma. And so, yeah, it's just such a joy to be able to come down and get to hang out with you guys this afternoon. As Ben said, we are going to be, excuse me, in Psalm 56. So excited to speak a little bit about that. Uh, but before we get there, uh, I want to talk a little bit about one of my favorite movies growing up. One of my favorite movies growing up was the 2004 movie, The Incredibles. The Incredibles, right? If you've never seen the movie, it tells the story of this whole family of superheroes, right? They've all got different superpowers. And the main character, his name, Bob Parr, or also known as Mr. Incredible, he has super strength. There's this workout montage of him in the movie where he's lifting trains. That's how strong this guy is. And so there's this point towards the end of the movie where when Bob is going to get to go ready to fight this big, bad robot, and he tells his wife, Helen, also known as Elastigirl, just to, just to hang around and wait with the kids, right? He, he's got this. He doesn't need her help. And this makes her really upset, right? She starts peppering him with a bunch of questions. Why do you have to go do this by yourself? Helen's got superpowers too, right? She can fight. She can hold her own. So with all of these questions that he keeps giving her, his response is he says that he's not strong enough. That's why she can't help. He says that he's not strong enough. And this just confuses her even more. There's even more questions that come out of that, right? Is this just some kind of a workout for you? Right? Is this going to make you stronger? Eventually, Bob, he screams out, I can't lose you again. I can't. Not again. I'm not strong enough. You see, earlier in the movie, Bob thought the rest of his family was killed and it broke him. He turned into a complete shell of a human. But with his family alive and well again, he just can't stand the thought of losing them for a second time. So really, Bob's character arc throughout the entire movie is that even though he's the strongest man in the world, he needs to learn that he's not strong enough to stop his worst fears from coming true. He's not strong enough to endure if his worst fears did come true. You know, we're not that much different from Mr. Incredible. Try as we may, as strong as we think we are, we're not strong enough. Ultimately, there's nothing that we can do to prevent our worst fears from coming true. I mean, think about it. The world is a a wild and and uncontrollable, and if we're just being honest with ourselves, it's a scary place. And because of that, for so many of us in here, fear just completely dominates our lives. We shelter and we helicopter parent our kids just for fear of what the world might do to them. We go crazy with all sorts of workouts and diets and supplements for fear of sickness and death. Or we manipulate and we people please for fear of what other people think about us. Maybe we 
we medicate with drugs and, and alcohol, or we distract ourselves with our cell phones or overworking, and all of it, just lying and pretending to ourselves that we're just not really afraid. But here's the thing. None of it's working. We're just as fearful as ever. In fact, there's been a lot of research that's been done on this lately is that even though we live in the, in the year 2023, we live in objectively the safest society that's ever existed, anxiety levels are still higher than they've ever been. So it's like the more we try to control our fear, the more it just controls us. And so left to ourselves, we have no hope in our fear. And so how do we deal with this? How do we face our greatest fears? Well, you see, uh, Psalm 56 answers this for us this morning. You see, David wrote this psalm in a time of great fear. And so there's a couple different points. If we look where this psalm was written in, in the book of 1 Samuel, there's a couple different points. Chapter 21, chapter 27, right, where, where David is fleeing from Saul and he tries to take refuge in this ancient city called Gath. And what Psalm 56 shows us is the, the fear that's spinning through David's head during this time. But what Psalm 56 also shows us is that we face our fears through trusting in God's faithfulness. I'm going to say that again. We face our fears through trusting in God's faithfulness. And so the psalm itself, it's actually split into two halves. There's a top half and a bottom half. And so that's how we're just going to take it this morning. The text first is going to show us our fears. And then the text is going to show us second, God's faithfulness. And so if you're a note taker, that's where we're going to go is our fears and God's faithfulness. Now, here's the thing about the subject of fear is it can be a really tricky subject to pin down. Right? People are afraid of all sorts of different things, but everyone I've asked about it over the last couple of weeks, they can relate to the emotion of being afraid, right, to, to experiencing fear. You see, fear is a universal human experience. Right? Everybody is afraid, whether it's infants all the way up to the elderly, it's women, even men, rich, poor, doesn't matter. But fear is even experienced by one of the famous, or the most famous men in all of history. You see, in many ways, David was a deeply fearful man. Which I don't know about you, but that kind of strikes me as odd because guys like David shouldn't be afraid. He's this, this handsome and talented warrior musician. God's promised him that he's going to be king someday. He's described as a man after God's own heart. Guys like David have no reason to be afraid. David, after all, is just a man. He experiences fear like the rest of us do. So let's go ahead and take a look at that. This is Psalm 56. If you've got your Bibles with you, I'm going to read here from verses 1 and 2. Psalm 56, 1 and 2. Here's what it says. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long. For many, attack me proudly. Can you feel the fear here in David's words? You see, from David's perspective, it seems like everybody just wants him dead. If you look at the heading of the psalm, it says, towards the end, it says, of David, 
when the Philistines seized him in Gath. You see, 1 Samuel 21 and 27, they give us a little bit more of a hint as to what's going on here in the passage. What was happening is David's father-in-law, Saul, right, the first king in Israel, what happened is, is Saul had lost the kingdom because of a moral failure. God said that the kingdom was going to be stripped from Saul and given over to David. And so Saul has been trying to hunt down David in a jealous rage and trying to kill him. That's what's happening here. And so as David is fleeing from Saul, he takes refuge in this city called Gath. This is the city of the Philistines. And here's the thing. The Philistines don't like David much either. As David gets there, they start to remember the, probably the, the thousands of people that David has killed, including their champion, Goliath. And so both Saul and the Philistines, they think David is just better off dead. Now, here's the thing. I don't think any of us have ever had someone, I could be wrong, I don't know any of you, hardly, but I don't think hardly any of us have ever had someone trying to hunt us down and kill us before. But let's go ahead and put ourselves in David's shoes here for a minute. See, God has promised David that sometime in the future, he's going to be king over entire Israel. Each of us, in the same way, we have these longings, these, these hopes, these desires for what the future might look like. But sometimes it's the, the present circumstances around us that cause us to doubt. To doubt that there could ever be a future like that in store for us. The, the circumstances that we run into are sometimes it's like a, a decline in physical health. Or maybe it's financial hardship. Maybe it's strife with family and friends or Maybe there's been some kind of physical or mental abuse. When we encounter circumstances like that, they, they make us think, how could there ever be anything good in store for me? When we realize that we're not strong enough to do anything about it, that's when the fear sets in. But here's the thing. David faces his fears through trusting in God's faithfulness. Here's what I mean. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. He says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? See, David's learned that when facing his worst fears imaginable, that he's not strong enough to be able to do anything about it on his own. And that he's learned that the best place to go with his fears is to God himself. But you see, just as quickly as David makes this amazing declaration of faith, the fears start to get the better of him again. They, they start to dominate his mind. And isn't this true with us? When we find ourselves in, in these awful kinds of circumstances, we want to we have faith, right? We want to believe that things are going to work out and be okay. But the fear starts bubbling up again. I mean, here's what David says. Verse five, all day long, they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they've waited for my life. For their crime, will they escape in wrath? Cast down the peoples, O God. You see, when David describes his fears in verses one and two, it feels pretty impersonal. It's almost like there's this animal coming at him, attacking and, and trampling. But 
You see, for David here, the fear isn't so much that someone's trying to kill him. David is a warrior after all. He's had lots of people that have wanted to kill him. For David, the fear is something much more personal. Something much more personal. You see, verse five says they injure my cause or, or more literally they give grief to words. And so people are, are twisting his words. They're thinking evil thoughts about him. They're, they're dragging his name through the mud. And they're doing all of these things as they wait to take his life. Some of us, unfortunately, know what this feels like. Right? To, to have our words manipulated and, and twisted, to be misunderstood, to have, to have people rooting against us personally, preying on our downfall, it can be a really lonely and scary place right, to feel like the entire world is against you. So much so that it makes us angry. Like David, we cry out to God for justice because we don't know what else to do. Neither does David. I mean, if you look at this, this statement of trust here in the first half of the psalm, if you look at it, beginning and at the end, the statement of trust, it's, it's bookended by fear. So it's like this radical statement of trust in God that David has here, this bookended to fear. It, it seems like despite David's faith, fear has the final word in his life. Right? This great and mighty warrior, a man after God's own heart, is completely consumed and wrapped up in his fear. You know, recently, uh, I was faced with some fears of my own. Some things about my past, coupled with some uncertainty of the future. And so I sat down with a friend one day for coffee, trying to talk it out, trying to figure out what was going on. And he asked me a really profound question. He said, Matt, what are you most afraid of? What are you most afraid of? sat there for a few minutes, never really thought about it that way before. I never really put it to words before. But here's the thing. As I begin to, to articulate and to, to speak aloud, right, to define my fears, something began to happen inside of me. But there was a change that began to take place. You see, as I spoke to my friend about my fears, as I was admitting that I wasn't strong enough to do anything about them on my own, the pressure have to do anything about them, began to subside. You see, nothing about my actual circumstance changed at all, but I left that conversation feeling much better than when I did going in. My fear, it didn't have as much power over me as it once did. As it once did. Here's what I'm trying to get at. As long as our fears stay internalized and undefined and covered up, we're going to continue to be bound and controlled by them. This is exactly what the enemy wants for us. That's why in Genesis 3 in the garden, when Adam and Eve sin against God, their fear causes them to hide, to isolate themselves. They isolate themselves from God and from each other. They start blaming God and they start blaming each other. That is the enemy's goal for us, is to remain isolated and trapped in our fear. Here's the thing, when we put our fears out into the open, into the light, it robs them of their power. My friend, he was helping me put a really clear definition to my fear because he understood, as one pastor puts it, 
He says that when named, fears lose half their potency. When named, fears lose half their potency. He did this so that I could begin to experience some degree of freedom for the moment. Now, here's the thing. The world will tell us all kinds of ways that we are to deal with our fear. The other day, a couple of friends of mine and, and me, we went to go see the Barbie movie in the theater. And before you ask, yes, we did dress up in all pink. It was great. It was a ton of fun. Now, if you haven't seen the Barbie movie, there's this character. His name is Ken. And Ken's greatest fear is being rejected by Barbie. And so what happens as you get to the end of the movie, I'm going to spoil it for you. As you get to the end of the movie, Ken is rejected by Barbie. And so he needs to come to realize that by himself, he's his own man. He doesn't need anyone else to, to complete him. And he wears this sweatshirt. It says, I am Kenuff. I am Kenuff. Right? It's a pun of his name. This is what the world will tell us we need to do with our fears, just to repeat these empty and baseless affirmations over ourselves again and again. Doesn't work doesn't work. But here's the thing. Sometimes, even as Christians, I think we can get it backwards. We think that because we're followers of this resurrected and powerful King Jesus, that we should never be afraid of anything, or that we should be fearless, ready to take on the world. Maybe you've heard in the Bible, it says, do not be afraid 365 times, one for every single day of the year. So we hear this, we, we clench our fists, and we pretend to be brave, but sooner or later, like Mr. Incredible, we realize that we're not strong enough. We're not strong enough. And so when the fear finally comes, so comes the, the guilt and the shame and the lying and the pretending and the controlling and the blaming. David is described often as a man after God's own heart. That doesn't mean that David's perfect, that he's always this super joyful person, that he's got his life all figured out. No, what it means is that in the midst of his most fearful circumstances, David wants to know what God's heart is. It's instead of hiding or pretending that everything is good and perfect, David is completely open and honest before God about his fear. And that's what he's doing here in the text for us. He's not letting his fear drive him farther away from God. And so just like David, you and I, we can come to a place of honesty before God about our fear. You see, fear, if we allow it to, it can actually drive us closer to God, to trusting in him more. And oftentimes, this is a really helpful process to do with a, with a friend, somebody that you love and trust, right? someone that's gonna listen to you well and ask some really good questions. So here's the thing. As a, as a friend, I wanna ask you some questions. Right? What is your fear producing in you? Is it more anxiety? Is it more desire for control? Is it rage? Is it driving you farther away from God? We see this in 1 Samuel all over the place with Saul. In the 1 Samuel narrative, that's what happens. Saul's fear, it drives him to be more violent, more crazy, and it drives him farther away from God. Or is your fear producing in you a greater trust, a greater faith in God? Because here's the thing, I don't know what you're most afraid of. It's different for everybody. 
could be the safety of yourself, your, your family. Maybe it's something about your reputation. Maybe it's something about your past, your, something coming down the way in the future. I don't know what it is. But when we experience these fears, we can honestly bring them before God simply by just admitting that we can't do anything about them on our own. And here's the thing, when we do this, when we admit that we can't do anything about them, it opens us up to see how God is being faithful in it. And so that's the first point the text is gonna show us here is our fears. The text is gonna show us now point two, God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. Remember, we face our fears through trusting in God's faithfulness. Now, when I say that word faithfulness or faithful, probably a lot of different things come to your mind. Maybe it's being faithful in marriage. Maybe you've got a faithful business partner. Or maybe for you, what comes to mind is old faithful, that hole in the ground that shoots the water up. That's what comes to mind for me. Now, really, what's the sense of this word is that is a trustworthiness, reliability, dependability, consistency. It's that person or that thing that you can depend on no matter what. And in this section, we're gonna see David is celebrating God's faithfulness, which means in the midst of his fear, David sees God as dependable, as trustworthy, as reliable. Now, David does this through poetry. That's what we're reading here. This is a poem. Uh, Here's something you might need to know about me is I'm a little bit of a poetry buff. And by that, I mean I've written exactly two poems in my life. No, to understand, to understand what the point of this poem is, we need to understand the, the structure that it was designed in, that it was written in. So I'm gonna spend a little bit of time here trying to point out some of that to us here today. We've already noticed how the psalm is supposed to be split into two different halves. Here's the thing. Things going on in the second half are expanding upon, they're developing things that happen in the first half. That's how, that's how the psalm works. So let me give you an example here. When we read verses one and two, they're meant to be paired up with the last two verses, 12 and 13. We're meant to see how these enemies trampling is in direct contrast with how God delivers. Or let's go to the next two sections. Right, there's this repeated refrain, verses three and four, 10 and 11. It says, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. I think the, the connection between those two is a little bit more obvious. There's some differences, which we'll talk about in a second. But even the very middle of the psalm, verses five, six, seven, and eight and nine, they're they're meant to go together as well. We're meant to see how their thoughts are against me is directly contrasted with how God is for me. That's how it's designed, right? The the second half is developing. It's expanding upon things going on in the first half. All right, so let's go ahead and, and, and look at it here. This is Psalm 56, verse eight. Here's what it says. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. On the surface, you might be a little bit confused about something here. What does this have to do with God's faithfulness? Right? We don't see that word in the passage. Here's the thing. These are David's words, but they're also God's words to us. Really what we see here, this is one of the most beautiful pictures in scripture about what God's heart is. I mean, some of you have been here, you know what this feels like. To to be so overwhelmed 
Be so consumed with your own fear that you can't even sleep. You can't get any rest at night. And so you're tossing and you're turning, tossing and turning. You're playing every scenario in your head over and over and over again. Did you know that God has kept count? He knows the exact number of times that you've tossed and you've turned. In ancient Israel, there was this practice where when a loved one died, you would save your tears that you cried in a little bottle and you would leave it beside the grave of the person that died. What this is saying here is that in every meltdown, in every anxiety attack, in every tear that you shed, you know, God has saved every single tear that you've cried. None of them have been wasted. And what this is getting at is in all your fear and all your anxiety and all your sleepless nights, the tears that you've shed, God is not distant or aloof or uncaring. No, in fact, quite the opposite. God knows about these things far better than we do and he cares about them far more. I mean, when it feels like the entire world is against you, have you ever dared to believe that God could be for you? Or to, to trust that God is faithful, dependable, reliable? What is it about God that makes him so faithful? Well, let's keep reading. Verses 10 and 11. <clears throat> it says, in God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? So we've already noted how this section is virtually identical to the section above it in verses three and four. You see, for David, this truth is like the chorus of the song that he keeps returning to over and over again. But there is one major difference from the section right above it. You see, when David says, in God, it's almost as if he pauses. Like, in God, whose word I praise, he pauses and he thinks about for a second who exactly he's talking about. And then he clarifies and he says, in the Lord, whose word I praise. You see, for the first time in the Psalm, David uses God's personal name. When David uses God's name, what he's saying, he's drawing his confidence from God's own character, namely his covenant faithfulness. Essentially what that means is this is God's particular faithfulness to his word, right? To keep the promises that he's made. You see, when the Lord makes a promise, he keeps it no matter what. Throughout history, countless promises have been made. God has kept every single one of them. Here's the thing. God is not just faithful to keep his promises in history. God is faithful to keep his promises in particular. And David knows this. Here's what David says, verse 12. I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling. That I may walk before God in the light of life. This section, these last two verses, they match up with the very first two verses. At the beginning, we, we see David lamenting this attack against him, but now we see David thanking God for his deliverance. You see, time and time again, God has continued to rescue and to deliver David from sure death situations. So not only that, but David, it says here, David can walk before God in the light of life. 
here's what this is getting at is, is God didn't just rescue the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt just to abandon them in the wilderness. God didn't just deliver David from death just to simply forget about him later on. No, you see, God's faithfulness to David, it extends beyond death. Essentially, this is a promise for David to get to walk in God's kingdom of light and life both now and forever. What a promise. That's great for David. What about me? God's never promised me a kingdom. God's never delivered me from death like he has with David. Here's the thing, friends. God has given to us an even better way to face our fears than what David had. God has given to us a better word to praise, a better promise to cling to than what David had. In fact, turn on your Bibles with me. If you're a Bible, let's go to John chapter 8, verse 12. When you find it, you can say, I got you, bro. That way I know we're all on the same page. John chapter 8, verse 12. While you're finding that, John chapter 8, verse 12, let me just give a little bit of background. Here we see Jesus. This is the word of God made flesh. This is the, the literal embodiment of the faithfulness of God. And here's what Jesus declares here. This is John chapter 8, verse 12. Here's what he says. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You know, it's, it's no coincidence that many people are afraid of the dark. You see, darkness really is a symbol for what you and I fear most. Death, eternal darkness. Our worst fears realized forever. You know, in our sin, that's what we deserve. As when David, in verse seven, when he calls down for God's wrath, that's what we deserve. But you know, in the midst of the darkness and in the fear and in the sin, God sent the light. God sent the light. You know, Jesus in his life was treated way worse than David ever was. He was beaten, he was mocked, he was spit on, he was tortured, he was wanted dead. You see, in Jesus, God understands our fears a lot better than we do. Here's the thing, even though Jesus was perfect, he never did anything to deserve any of this, in the end, he wasn't delivered from death. He was delivered to death. Death on the cross, where Jesus took on our worst fears. The wrath of God. But you know, the faithfulness of God, it extends beyond death. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, conquering our worst fear. And Jesus now, he offers the same light of life that, Jesus, that, that David is talking about here, rather, but essentially what he's talking about is eternal life. He offers it to anyone who would follow him, right? Anyone who would trust in him. 
You see, apart from Jesus, you are at the mercy of every single fear that you face. And so it's only through God's faithfulness to us in Jesus can we face our fears. And you know, God, in sending Jesus to us, it is the ultimate proof that he is for us, as the psalm declares here. And so it doesn't matter what fear or danger or hardship comes our way. We can rejoice or we can celebrate with the truth of something like in Romans 8, 31 and 32. Here's what it says. What then shall we say to these things, right? The, the fear, the danger, the hardship. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Or even jumping down to verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, none of these things. Because of Jesus, we join in with, the, with David here in this psalm and saying this almost of a mocking kind of a question of what can man do to me? Nothing. Nothing. You see, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, fear doesn't have the last word in our lives. God's faithfulness towards us gets the final word. In other words, we face our fears through trusting in God's faithfulness. So here's the thing, when we encounter the faithfulness of God in our deepest fears, the only logical response to, to such a truth of, of, as that is one of worship. You see, the act of worship is just rehearsing or practicing right now what's gonna later be our future reality. And so because of our faith in Jesus, the final word on our lives is God's faithfulness. And so in worship, we can celebrate or we can rehearse God's faithfulness to us right now as we wait later for it to come in all its fullness. There's all kinds of different ways that we can do that. One of the ways I think is tied to the Psalm. If you wanna go back to Psalm 56, you can look at the top of the heading and there's all kinds of different musical terms going on at the top. There's a choir master. It's supposed to be written and performed in a specific tune. You see, Psalm 56 was written as a song to be sung out loud with people. Music, or, or any art, really, it has the ability to arrest our emotions in ways that normal words just can't do. So here's the thing. Is we, what happens as we gather together as God's people, as we sing, as we remind each other of God's faithfulness through song, something truly awesome happens. And Eugene Peterson says it this way. He says, any evil, no matter how fearsome, is exposed as weak and pedantic before such songs. Right? As we sing of God's faithfulness, what we're doing is we, we make fun of, we make light of our fears. Our fear is arrested and it's thrown into solitary confinement. So as we're singing of God's faithfulness, we can practice right now, we can rehearse right now what's gonna be our future reality. Ray Ortland says it this way, the heart sings when we accept how little it matters that we are in control and how much it matters that God is in control for us. But now here's the thing, worship is about so much more than just singing. We can rejoice and we can praise God even in the midst of our fears. Our fear can be an opportunity to worship. Because what our fears does, what our fear does, 
is it helps us realize our need for a savior, our need for someone to come and deliver us, to rescue us, to save us. And because of this savior, because of Jesus, the last word on our lives is not the fear, but it's God's faithfulness. So in the middle of our fear, just like David does, we can rejoice, we can praise God because of Jesus. Now, here's the thing. Trusting in God doesn't necessarily mean that your circumstance is going to change. In fact, it probably won't. But it does mean that we can experience a supernatural joy in the middle of it. You know, going back to that scene at the end of The Incredibles, when Bob admits his fear to his wife, right, that he's not strong enough to be able to do anything about him, he can't stand losing them again. His Helen's immediate response is, to give him a big hug and a big kiss and essentially to say, if we do it together, you won't have to be strong enough. Essentially what she says is, no matter what happens, I'm sticking right by your side. I'm not going anywhere. And you can see the fear melt off of his face. I mean, it makes sense, right? Think back to a time when you were little, little you, and you had a nightmare and you couldn't sleep. What was it that eventually calmed you down? I'm willing to guess it was mom or dad. They climbed into bed with you. They laid down with you. And they promised that they weren't going anywhere until the fears left. That's what Psalm 56 does for us. Psalm 56 is God climbing down into our fear and essentially saying to us, I I know you're afraid. I know you're scared. I know you're, you're hurting. You're you're tired, you're weary, I I know. But it's all right. You can trust me. It's going to work out. I'm not going to lose, I'm going to win. When faced with our fears, we we can rejoice in knowing that God is faithful. Amen? Amen. We face our fears through trusting in God's faithfulness. Let me pray, and we'll continue on with the rest of the service. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are faithful and you sent your son Jesus to us who took on our worst fear, the fear that we deserve to take on. You you sent him to take it on for us. So thank you that by faith, right, by trusting in Jesus, he he can conquer our worst fear, God, and we can worship. We can rejoice in what you've done for us. So help us to do that in the midst of our fear. Will we be honest with you about it? And will we trust you that you are the one that's gonna do the work in and through us and in our circumstance? in ways that we can't even understand. We need your help. We're praying this all in Jesus' name. Amen.